Oh, Father, we exalt you this day. We do declare with the words of this song that you are greater, that you are higher than any other, that there is none like you. There is no God beside you. There never has been and never will be a competitor to your throne. All who would exalt himself above the knowledge of you will be judged and destroyed. They will be made the fool. Our God laughs in the heavens. He holds those in derision who transgress his law, who seek to throw off the chains of his rule. Our God is King of kings and Lord of lords and has manifest his reign in his Messiah, who has been given all the nations as an inheritance on this earth and who has proceeded to reign and to rule and sits even now at the right hand of the Father. There our Lord Jesus Christ, celebrated and exalted, has made complete and satisfactory atonement for our sins, declaring himself Lord over death, the grave, sin, and judgment. There he has announced and proclaimed his majesty and his crown rights over the course of this whole earth such that kings who will not bow before him will one day bow at his judgment seat as they are destroyed and he remains forever without end king of kings we thank you lord for these truths that we celebrate this day as we go all the way back to the first pages of your revelation and your holy word this day i pray that you would awaken our understanding to eternal truths that bind the whole counsel of god together We pray that our hearts would quicken, Lord Jesus, with anticipation of what the Holy Spirit might show us through His Scriptures proclaimed in our hearing today. We pray that it would strengthen and equip your people to stand in a day where you are questioned and where your word is taken lightly, that we would push back the gates of darkness, that we would advance the kingdom of God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ unashamedly. We pray, Lord, that you would move us to reverent worship and awe upon the revelation of yourself in your holy word. In all of this, we trust that if you answer these, these prayer requests today, it will be evidence of the Spirit's work and use of even this service today. And so we thank you in advance for accomplishing this work that we could never do by your abiding presence among us this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. We have the great privilege and the honor of joining together as His people today in opening up His Holy Scriptures and considering again the book of Genesis. Turn with me to page 1 of your Bible, Genesis 1, and this morning uh, we will cover a few concepts that stretch across several verses in this chapter, particularly verses 3 through 28. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's message is The Architecture of Reality. Architecture of Reality. The very building blocks for reality itself, not just the material world, but spiritual truths are contained, are proclaimed, are revealed in the book of Genesis, right from page one. Now, we are so familiar with these texts, and sometimes their application is limited in our experience to particular, sometimes apologetic Uh, applications that we may miss much of the golden treasure contained in Genesis 1. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to hone our ability to recognize the glories of God in Scripture from seed form all the way to full flowering. And we will consider concepts in seed form from Genesis 1 today. Lord willing, our next sermon in Genesis will be along those same lines, tentatively titled Seed Themes. Themes of Scripture that appear first in seed form, but will flourish, expand, grow, unfold through the course of Scripture. As we see these things, I believe that our hearts will be moved and we will be greatly encouraged and fortified in our faith, recognizing the genius of Scripture, the continuity of the same, and will strengthen our ability to represent the Lord and His Word more clearly, more boldly, more emphatically to a world of unbelievers. So with that introduction, would you stand this morning with me out of reverence for the Holy Word of God, and let us consider these scriptures today. Again, Genesis 1, 3 through 28. Listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your ears this morning. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, 
Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 7, And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let all the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. Final day, verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. One of the reasons our reading is a little bit longer than usual this morning is to uh, recognize, hopefully, in your hearing today, certain words and phrases, concepts, if you will, that are repeated throughout the text. More than once, in fact, many times, we hear the phrase, and God said. We hear again the phrase repeated often, after their own kind. We see that God is establishing a pattern here. We see that there are repeated ways and means that He is employing to reveal His power and His might and majesty through the creation event. So we will seek to recognize, point out some of these, and try to learn the lessons from Scripture that would answer the question, why does God emphasize certain things in Genesis 1? Today, under the title, The Architecture of Reality, we see that within the creation narrative of Scripture, we have infinitely more than just a journalist, first-person observations of a historical event. If you sent the best, most respected, most quote-unquote objective reporters back to the moment of the Earth's first creation, if they could sit with pad and pen in hand, even with video recorder at their shoulder, and look upon the expanse as God unfolds His power in His creation they would be able to record for us and to present to us certain aspects of what they experienced. But what they could not do is tell that narrative from the perspective of God Himself. They could tell you what was going on, but they would be clueless as to why. They could tell you the amazing things that were unfolding before their eyes, 
but they couldn't tell you how they would tie together with future events that God would yet unfold through the course of His redemptive history. They could tell you, I have seen amazing things come into view, but they could not tell you that those amazing things pointed symbolically to more amazing things still. Now, when we see this, or when we recognize this, I pray that our heart and our attention would be quickened as we look at Genesis chapter 1. We have more than just an account of events. We have an account of events from God's perspective that tells us why, that points to events to come, that reveals aspect of his, aspects of His nature and character beyond anything that a mere human journalist could ever unfold before our understanding. We are beholding in the first pages of Genesis the definitive building blocks for reality itself. The nature of material existence, the world, the universe, as we experience it, as it relates to the nature of God. What is the nature, or how are we to understand the nature of our world as it relates to the nature of God? That is a huge question. It's full of real-life applications as well as a host of philosophical potential, philosophical abstractions. It's a question that captivates the attention of thinkers all through the ages, but without the Word of God at their fingertips. Their answers are empty, worthless, idolatrous, perish with the using, and indeed corrupt the hearer. But we have something else. We have a divine, God-breathed account of how this world in its physical form, relates to the nature of the God who made it in the first place. Just as Genesis 1 stands in contradiction to the life origin theories that ascribe sovereignty to chaos, one thinks of evolution as an explanatory theory to describe, to explain why we came here, and the foolishness of that, it ascribes, after all, sovereignty to an impersonal forces. It ascribes the power to create to engineer, to chaos, to an explosion, to an absolute disorder. Well, Genesis stands in contradiction to that, but so also the Word of God from the beginning stands in contradiction to vain philosophies which assume the sovereignty of man. Neither process, chaos, nor man is sovereign. God is sovereign. Genesis 1 tells us this, shows us this. God reveals to us in His creation account that He is Lord of the material and He is Lord of the immaterial. He's Lord of the realm of what we can study in the lab, and He's Lord over the realm of the mind, that which we comprehend in concepts and ideas. He is the sovereign over earth and space, over the cosmos, if you will, just as He is Lord over the following. Time, history, ethics, meaning, knowledge, beauty, logic, righteousness, and redemption. Those are just a few immaterial things that shape the worldview of all peoples. But whatever they fill in those blanks or whatever they define each term by determines whether or not they worship the one true God. Well, Genesis explains to us from the first pages that the Lord is sovereign not, over, not only over the material world, but He is sovereign over time, history, ethics, meaning, knowledge, beauty, logic, righteousness, and redemption, and the very building blocks of reality itself are granted to us in revelatory terms from Genesis chapter 1. The building blocks, that is to say, for the language of God's self-disclosure, the language of God introducing Himself to us through all of these aspects of reality are present, I submit to you today, in seed form or distilled revelation in the Genesis creation account. And as we grow in recognizing and connecting through Scripture, the means that God employs to reveal divine truth, what might, we expect? what might we expect? What is the value or the application uh, purchase for recognizing these things? Not just to add to our intellectual understanding fun facts, but the following should be the result of understanding the building blocks of reality itself as God defines them. We will grow in our faith. We will grow as we understand the Lord and how He has revealed Himself in our worship our language of worship, our awe of the Lord and His glories revealed ought to increase our resolve, our confidence amidst a culture of unbelief will be bolstered. Our witness to the continuity 
the power, the genius of Scripture will be increased, will be strengthened. Our fear of the Lord, our love of, the, of Him ought also will also increase, may I suggest, as we behold Him revealed in these glorious ways from the beginning pages of Scripture. Now to help us toward this end, let us focus this morning on the works of God in creation signaled by several key verbs. A verb is an action word, right? Uh, young students of English in the room, we have nouns, we have adjectives and verbs. Nouns are things, adjectives describe those things, and verbs are actions. Things that, uh, or a word to describe something that you do. There are words that describe things that God does that are significant in Genesis chapter 1. Consider this heading, action words of the sovereign and personal creator. Verbs, you could say, of the sovereign and personal creator. Uh, turn to, again, in your scriptures to Genesis 1, 3 <coughs> through 5. Let us read these verses and make a mental note of the action words. And God said, there's your first highlightable word, said, God said, a verb. Let there be light, and there was light. Verse 4, and God saw, second word, saw, that the light was good. So we have two verbs so far, God said, God saw, third verb coming up, and God separated the light from the darkness, separated, an action that our sovereign and personal God has taken, separated. Uh, uh, fourthly, God called, there's another verb, God called the light day and the darkness He called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. As we consider action words, of the sovereign and personal creator, let's consider three. We'll bring in called under one of them. First of all, God said. Let's consider the significance of that action word, God speaking. Secondly, God separated, the significance of that action. And thirdly, God saw the significance of the third. First of all, God said. As we see these verbs directly associated with God in His sovereign action in creation, we find that these are foundational activities of God that structure the reality of all of Scripture and the meaning of life. When you think about the scope of God's works all through history, in a particular example, say let's cite one, Abraham, to the work of God across the landscape of all that He has planned, we see that the fact that God said, God saw, God separated, and God called to be repeated themes throughout the course of Revelation. Just one example to, to demonstrate this. This comes from our Hebrews, our recent Hebrew study. You recall the story, the account of Abraham among the record of the faithful in Hebrews 11. Notice the actions that God takes in the life of Abraham. Hebrews 11:8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place. So there's calling. And when he received that he was to receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. So not stated but implied is separation. He leaves the land as we recount the story of Abraham of idolatry, is separated from that pagan people unto God's purpose. And this purpose is revealed in time, but in the meantime he goes, he lives in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Just a snapshot from the life and calling of Abraham that includes the concepts of God's activity in the life course of his purposes, in this case with respect to his servant Abraham, where God says, he delivers his word to Abraham, he speaks to Abraham and he calls him out of darkness into light. He separates Abraham from the paganism of his experience unto holiness and a purpose and a calling to show forth the praises of his Lord and to be established as the first among a people who would shine forth to the nations. God uh, sees or he declares, he perceives, he proclaims through this means into the future his re uh, divine purposes that will unfold through the course of all of scriptures. God, see, God says, he sees, he separates, he calls Abraham for his purposes. Now underneath God said, 
we get asked the next obvious question, what does he say? Well, there are several phrases that are repeated. The first thing God says, recorded in verse 3, is, let there be light. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That phrase, let there be, is significant. It's an action that the Lord takes. It's words that are specifically chosen that indicate His power to bring into being that which prior did not exist. This is repeated throughout the account, is it not? That's verse 3. Notice verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And we move on through the course of the narrative when we see a modified form or expanded, you can say, in verses 9 and 11. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. In so many words, you could say, let there be land, perhaps. Then we see this, let there be, this uh, action that God is, or, or this, these, these directives that God is speaking in verse 14. And God said, again, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And again, he says, and let them be for certain things. So again, these, this phrase is repeated throughout the account. In verses 20, 24, and 26, it's expanded again. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And so the sea creatures are created. As God says in so many words, again, let there be fish. And it goes on, let there be birds. And eventually, let there be man. The action word of the sovereign and personal creator that is repeated most often in this section is, let there be. And immediately upon God's utterance of, these, of this phrase, as it were, there was. There was light. There was land in the midst of the waters. There was creatures populating this new land. There was plants springing forth. There was man himself fashioned and formed from the dust of the earth. Now we see this command, this action, the Lord's word and its power all through Scripture. After all, this is the, the Bible itself is described as God's word. Jesus Christ himself is what? The word made flesh, the word incarnate walking among us. Jesus Christ is in this sense understood as the action that God takes uh, in the salvation of his people. And Christ himself has, in his unfolding miracles, demonstrates to us, let there be moments throughout the Gospels. Jesus' first miracle, and one of his most powerful, both recorded in the book of John, two I'm thinking of this morning, are let there be moments where Jesus himself demonstrates the action words of the Lord when he calls, in his first miracle, John 2, 6 through 11, wine from water. And now from water comes, uh, comes forth God's purposes upon the word, the direction of Jesus Christ. Even more specific and powerful, perhaps, is John eleven thirteen, where upon the spoken word of Christ, declaring, Lazarus, come out, that which was dead received life. Jesus proclaimed in as many words, let there be life to Lazarus, and the dead, and that which was dead came once again into being. Lazarus was resurrected. This word, or this idea, this notion, this building block of reality speaks to sovereign generation. The ability of God to call forth life from nothing. When the Bible says that you, saint, were once dead in your trespasses and sins, we are to associate with that reality of our existence the let there be power of God who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we are to understand our regeneration, our salvation, not as a you know, sort of a focus change, a new hobby, a new decision merely that we embark upon in our life, but as a let there be called out from death unto life moment by the sovereign God. The very building blocks of reality are given to us all the way back in Genesis so that we understand regeneration. Not just Genesis, but regenesis, if you will, our own salvation. Now God says more, more than just let them be. He ascribes purpose to His creation. 
We find a second phrase in verse 14, when in this example, he declares reasons for the existence of the lights in the midst of the heavens. Let them be for something, in other words. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to, and that word to, of course, indicates purpose, separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. It goes on to reveal how these two great lights, we understand them, of course, as the sun and the moon, rule the day and rule the night according to God's command. At His let there be proclamation, there was the sun and there was the moon. But more than this, at His let there be for proclamation, they began to fulfill the purpose whereby God had intended they exist. What is the purpose? They are to separate the day from the night. They are for signs and for seasons, for days and for years, and to give light upon the earth. God reserves the right in His creative authority to not only bring from nothing that which is, but also to sovereignly prescribe the purpose for its existence. And this is true of the sun and the moon as much as it is true for you and I. God gives us our life and our existence. God gives us our purpose and meaning for existence. When man transgresses, when, when man fails to realize this, he will move beyond as the ancients did. The purpose of the sun and moon listed as we have seen in the creation account, to more. Oh, the sun and moon provide meaning for our whole lives and begin to worship them. And when he does, he is guilty of the punishment of death because he has sinned against the God who is responsible for setting those heavenly luminaries, those heavenly bodies in the uh, sky, in the expanse in the first place. And he has elevated something else to the power of creator and or the power of of providing meaning for our lives. God, the building blocks of reality, from the very beginning of Scripture, the architecture of the whole of creation, speak to us that God has the power to create and God has the power, the right, and the authority to ascribe meaning and purpose to all that He has made. What do the Scriptures go on to say? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Some of you have memorized that text. Day unto day, utter speech, night unto night, reveals knowledge. Creation itself understands, if you will, that it is created for a purpose. It magnifies and glorifies the Lord. The indictment against sinful man is only heightened upon this reality. How wicked is it for us to deny that God has created us for a purpose when the trees yet give praise to His name, clapping their hands in the fields? And the sunsets reflect the glory of God as colors wash across the expanse each evening. We see from Genesis to the testimony of creation today that God has created and He has created for a purpose. And this ought to move us in reverence and in fear to ask ourselves, for what purpose has God designed me? And to find, as the confession says, summarizing the whole of Scripture, that it is our call, just like the rest of the created realm, to give Him glory to seek Him first and His kingdom, not other things over and above Him, and to enjoy Him, in fact, forever. Finally, under God said, there's a command, be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.22, two kinds of creatures, generally speaking, that God gives us command to. God blessed them. These are the creatures that swarm in the waters and fly across the expanse. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. This command, this word of God, what else did God say, is repeated in verse 28. But this time, it's a commandment to mankind. Verse 27, God creates man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Then He issues this word, this command. Directive, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, quote, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see that when God speaks, He does so in the following ways. First, to bring what was non-existent into existence. Secondly, to ascribe to them their purpose for existing. And thirdly, to deliver to them His law, His commands, His instructions for obedience and following His will and His way. You see the building blocks for reality, even for a well-ordered understanding of the whole of the Christian life. In fact, the Christian worldview, which takes seriously the directives of God, all of His revealed Word, and seeks to live in light of it as God has changed our heart. We walk in the fruit of that change by faith and obedience, as Paul develops in the book of Romans, as his intent and aim. You see that all of these building blocks are present from the beginning. When God commands, be fruitful and multiply, it is His Word giving instruction, giving direction, giving the rule of law for His creation. All His creatures receive from Him His law, His command, and all are duty-bound to obey Him. And so they did early on in, before sin entered the world. And imagine the beauty and harmony of such an existence where everything realizes its purpose under God and follows His will to the T. We have seen this kind of obedience in the course of human history since Adam until the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And thus, in Jesus, we find the Prince of Peace with the power to recreate the new heavens and new earth and set things right and into order once again. Why? Because He perfectly obeyed the Father who sent the Son to walk in our shoes and to take on the duty as the second Adam to fulfill all righteousness, and as He did so, even dying for our sins, this man who understood the Word of God and was the Word of God was killed in our place and now has the power of regeneration in His work and his, in His Word. And in Him, we can once again be reconciled to the original intent and beyond of God's power and purposes for mankind to walk in the footsteps that God has laid out before us to fulfill His law and command, to live in light of His glorious design for all creation. Indeed, to be fruitful and to multiply, to multiply by disciples and to take dominion in and through Christ as He gives us grace to do so, to begin to live more and more of our life in concurrence with His word and will and to exercise, as it were, a redeemed form of this dominion mandate until such time as we uh, do so perfectly in the new heavens and new earth. The action words of the sovereign and personal creator are there right in the beginning, giving us the building blocks, the architecture of reality in uh, what follows this phrase, God said. Second major phrase this morning, God separated. We're considering the action words of the eminent, which means over and above, and the imminent, intensely personal creator, the sovereign and personal creator. Second action word, separated. God separated. Now this word appears several times in our text today, does it not? Verse 3 or verse 4, Genesis 1, God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Of course, he then calls uh, the darkness night and the uh, light day and so forth. We see this action of God taken again in verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Again, verse 7, God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. So we see again in verse 18, that after ascribing you know, the uh, duty of the sun and moon to rule over day and night, the part of the job of these heavenly bodies was to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So there's this reference to separation. Turn with me in your scriptures to Leviticus 20. This theme, this building block of reality, becomes uh, more and more powerful as its associations, that which God intends to reveal alongside it, are unveiled through the course of scripture. In Leviticus 20, 24 through 26, this idea, this concept of separation is expanded to include the following, reading God's scriptures later revealed in His law. Exodus 20, 24. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you 
to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, because I have set apart for you to hold unclean, uh, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, verse 26, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So this idea of separation, as it unfolds through Scripture, contains the uh, notion of holiness, perfection, set apart, consecration, even refinement. How is gold refined from its rough state in the ore? Well, it is taken, it is heated, and then the separation of that gold, the pure element from the dross, from the slag, from the waste, takes place. This is another biblical imagery. As we mentioned already, Abraham is separated from the pagan world unto holiness. God is all about uh, separating, drawing distinctions, moving the wicked and the unclean, and drawing a contrast between, between that and the righteous and the holy. God takes our filthy rags of our own works righteousness, and they are burned uh, at Calvary, as it were, and then He gives us in their stead His white, clean, perfect robes. There's a separation of us from our sin in our salvation. God accomplishes these things. So all through Scripture, this separation idea is developed. God separated the light from the dark, we see first of all in Genesis 4. And in doing so, God calls this good. He says, and God saw the light, and it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. These are elements in the natural order that God in His power displays His authority and His initiative to differentiate, to display the difference between the two. And this will become a powerful reality in the future. Again, in verses 4 and 6, in the expanse, He separates the waters from the waters. In verse 9, He separates the waters from the dry land, the same concept. And in 17 through 18, He gives instructions to the heavenly bodies to rule over day and night. And as such, they separate the light from the darkness, creating, establishing evening and morning, and so forth. God separates the light from the dark. There's more separation. There's more distinction, however, that is going on in Genesis chapter 1. God also separates the creatures according to their kinds. Notice this in verse 11. This phrase is repeated often. God said, let the earth sprout, vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed, again, according to their kinds. He goes on to say that uh, again in the same verse, the trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And so we see all through the course that God is assigning categories. He is sovereign over the identity of all His creatures from plants to man. In verse 21, God created the sea creatures, every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to their kinds. So He's separating out. He's providing His sovereign categories. He's, he's ascribing to them their purpose and identity in this action. And as he does so, we find in the course of this revelation uh, that God separates out man from the rest of the creatures, and he's of a different kind altogether. What kind is man, you might ask? We find this answered in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Man is of, you could say, if you will, of the God kind. Man is made in the similitude, in the image of God. He is in a different category than the animals inasmuch as he is made in the image of God. Men and women alike are made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. There's a difference of kind, uh, male to female. There's a difference in kind, man to creature, and so forth. Man is of the God kind, if you will. Other creatures are set apart with reference or differentiation from the next kind. A bird is different from a cat. But we are set apart with reference to our similitude with God. Not only are we different than a bird and a cat, 
But we are different from all the rest of the creatures inasmuch as we are made in the image of God. Now, this is significant. Again, we are talking about the very architecture of reality, how to understand yourself and the world, how to understand the material existence of man himself, who he is, his identity, the creatures themselves, their identity with respect to the God that made them. And if you don't think this is significant, consider the confusion in our world today with respect to this concept alone. It's under full-scale assault in our day, is it not? Now, recently, there was a, a, a statement that I actually heard from an unbeliever. Um, in this case, Dennis Prager, I believe, who uh, is a conservative Jew, has not bowed the knee to Christ. Pray that he would. He recognized at least this much, much truth in the biblical worldview. It was his contention that from the pages of Genesis, we understand that there is a difference between man and God. He outlined five differences. There's a difference between man and God. Secondly, there's a difference between man and animal. Thirdly, a difference between man and woman. Fourthly, a difference between good and evil. And his schema here, just interpreting you know, the profundity of these pages that we've read, a difference between the holy and the profane. And his contention is, it is no uh, coincidence that secular unbelieving man seeks to obliterate every single one of those differences. And to that degree, I think he is correct. It is no act, it is, it's, it's quite illustrative. The very, the, the sins that we pursue as a society, we think will get, uh, set us in a state of authority to render obsolete and stupid the Word of God, the very sins that we pursue, our favorite ways to rebel against God, actually correspond line for line with the polar opposite that God has declared are, is the architecture of reality from the very beginning. Man in his foolishness only shows God righteous, holy, True, God is a genius. Why? We see the fallout of these kind of pursuits. We don't know who we are. When the differences between man and beast are eliminated effectively on the theory of evolution, now we don't know where to ascribe value. We uh, weep for Harambe, the gorilla that was killed to save a boy in a zoo. Or we uh, make it our cause celeb in California to eliminate all puppy mills and then we celebrate as a virtue and an absolute right, uh, you know, and spin it as the reproductive rights of the woman to say that abortion ought to continue on demand, unfettered to the tune of millions slaughtered in this land. No one seeks to shut down the abortion mills, a seldom do, especially in our wicked world, to the fervor that they weep for Cecil the lion or complain about the abuse of animals. Why? Because we have lost the distinction, generally speaking, in American culture between man and beast. A distinction, differentiation, a separation that God assigned from the very beginning of creation. And it is an identity, a these are categories and an identity that we lose at our own peril. Civilization will implode if we continue to build consistently upon the foundation of no distinction between man and animal. One example. But how about the distinction between man and God? The very first sin, which we will cover in future weeks, is a sin of this order. Man sought to exalt himself to the same place as God. The devil promised that man could be on the same plane, having the same grasp of the knowledge of good and evil that God in His perfect wisdom have. Eliminate the distinction. God has not separated you from Himself. There's no real separation between the creature and the Creator. You can be as God. And what happened? Immediately, man died. His soul was corrupted by believing that lie, and man fell into sin. Not only this corrupted the entire human race, you and I were born with a spiritual blood poisoning, which was the consequence and effect of the loss in Adam and Eve's consciousness of the distinction, the separation between man and God. Need I go on today? The separation between man and woman that seeks to be obliterated. Why? Because man has declared war against the God who created him, the God who has ascribed categories for his identity, and man seeks to uh, eliminate those altogether 
And now it's not even, we, we aren't even limited to the categories of he and her and even getting those confused, but there's zur and z and a million other pronouns. And no one can keep up with the absolute confusion of 70 plus genders flooding into a rebellious culture that has lost connection to the very building blocks of reality and the architecture of this material world that is established from the beginning. And if we just believed that God created each according to his kind, we would have grounds for repentance. We need the book of Genesis, understood and proclaimed in our day, because the paganism that is overflowing our land is absolutely destructive to the very foundation of life and society, not to mention, and worst of all, a rebellion against the Lord of glory. God separated. Under God separating, God also calls. This is a demonstration of His naming authority ascribing identity. His prerogative and His creative right is asserted from the first pages of Genesis. Chapter 5, He calls the light day, He calls the darkness night. Verse 8 goes on to say, And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. God calls out Adam and actually delegates to him as his dominion agent the duty of calling animals of naming them, of ascribing categories. And so God, and again, by virtue of Adam's being made in the image of God, the intent, the, the uh, uh, glorious intent of this was that he would be a co-ruler, taking dominion alongside God, stewarding his creation. But this presupposes the correct understanding of what it means to be called, assigned, identified, and purposed by your sovereign, and then walking in your calling fulfilling His purposes, His commands for you to call out and to assign and to ascribe the correct categories as you interact in His world. And calling through Scripture, God reserves the right to change man's very name. He calls out Abram. Again, we've mentioned him. And what does he do? He gives him a new name, Abraham. More than this, his wife, Sarai, becomes Sarah. Why? Because God identifies him and ascribes to him a vocation, a calling, a purpose that he otherwise had not known, and his name change, changes, signaling, uh, symbolizing that God is his father, has the right as his creator to assign him to a particular task. This happens all through scriptures. Uh, Jacob uh, is given that name, Israel, and so, uh, so forth. Uh, we see it in Saul becoming Paul. We see it, see it again in the New Testament, Simon uh, being named Peter, and so forth. All of this, these building blocks of God's prerogative for His creatures goes back to the book of Genesis. It is rooted in God said. It is rooted in God separated. It is rooted in God called. Finally this morning, action words of the sovereign and personal creator, God saw. This is an interesting one. At first it seems to be passive. Uh, God looks upon what has happened, He sees. And, but we would be wrong to import into our understanding of God saw, God learning uh, something. No, the idea is something different and, and indeed. Uh, Genesis 1-4, God saw that the light was good. When God sees that the light is good, the idea here is that God perceives, He discerns, He judges, He rules, He discriminates, He establishes what is good. What is being laid out in the very building blocks, the architecture of reality from Genesis, is this fact, that that which is good is what God says it is. Good is what God says it is. If you learn that phrase and apply it in your life, there will be so much clarity and power and ability for you to stand in a day of darkness and loss of reason, confusion, malevolence, and rebellion against the holy God. People talk about the good all the time. What's well, the good life and this is good and that's good. Just every time you hear a value judgment, Preach to you from the pulpits of an apostate culture from rebellious man. Remember in your mind, good is what God says it is. God saw that the light was good. And of course, this uh, designation of goodness, this God's authoritative decree that this is right, it's holy, it's in accord with His intent, it lines up with His purposes for His creation. It's reiterated through the whole account, is it not? Verse 12, after the seed-bearing plants burst into bloom, says God saw that it was good. A couple other examples. So God created in verse 21, the sea creatures, every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind. God saw 
that it was good. God again creates the livestock and the creatures that crawl and creep on the sixth day. And in verse 25, he saw again, God saw that it was good. To sum up his creation and to signify and seal it with a proclamation of its beauty and as much as it reflects his glory, we see this again uh, reiterated at the very end of the account in the sixth day, verse 31. And God saw that everything he had made, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God saw it was good. This was a value judgment proclamation. This was an, an affirmative action taken by God. It was a commendation of the holy and good. It teaches us, as I've said, that good is what God says it is. And we look to Him and His revelation to know what is the good, what is the good life, and consequently, conversely, what is evil. What is good, what is evil. It is what God says it is. This concept, of course, is developed through the Pentateuch. As God reveals His law, we receive, we do not determine on our own uh, by our own hand. We do not decree by our own authority. It is not up for review or change by cultures that adapt and evolve. No. Revelation is received. We know it is the good from what God has proclaimed it to be. We know it is evil because He has decreed, thou shalt not. And we know it is good because He has affirmed that behold, He saw, and that which He intends and purposes according to His holy will is good. More than this, God blessed. God not only decrees in, by observing and perceiving and by ruling in this sense and by instructing us in the good, but He also actively bestows His goodness upon His creatures, especially man. In verse 22, God bestows His goodness. It says, God blessed them, speaking of the birds, the fish, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Uh, and so forth. Verse 28, blessing upon blessing is heaped upon chief of all his creatures, man himself. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves upon the earth. Reminding us from the very beginning that any blessing, any goodness, any benefit, any value, any virtue is something that God bestows actively upon His creation. We don't have it in and of ourselves. We aren't some independent, autonomous you know, thing of, uh, of creaturely value, independent of what God has created, ordained, and ascribed unto us. We are good because God has made us in His image. We're evil when we are corrupted in our sin and refuse to acknowledge that. We are made good again only by God's power to redeem, to call us forth from the death of sin that that denial of His truth deserves unto regeneration to recognize the good again as something God alone ascribes. There's no natural goodness in the sense that uh, things in and of themselves are innately have value. We value those things. The things only have true value and goodness in as much as God has ordained and ascribed it unto them, including you and I. In closing this morning, my contention has been that these are building blocks for reality, that we are witnessing in these phrases, and these concepts, words, action verbs, that the architecture of reality itself. And so we can expand this, I suggest to you, and I I'd encourage you to study along these lines. We can assume then that Genesis 1 trains us to recognize the significance of events through the course of the Scriptures. And I believe it does. Let me give you one example in closing. Turn with me to Matthew 3. Last week we had a baptism in this church, and many were gathered to see seven... Young people confessed their faith and they were baptized. It's a powerful moment. The moment of baptism for any true believer was preceded by the baptism of the one who's gone before. We see the account of Christ's own baptism in Matthew chapter 3. But notice as we read how Genesis 1 prepares us to recognize the significance of this event. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now. So thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and he consented, that is, John the Baptist agreed to baptize Jesus, and the event proceeds, verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this 
is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, then he was. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then we see the unfolding of Scripture revealing the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. How does Genesis 1 train us to recognize the significance of this event? Well, notice, as we have said, that God uh, says, He sees, He separates, and He calls. And these actions are involved in Jesus' own initiation, Genesis, if you will, of His ministry. Just like the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters, and upon that action of God the Holy Spirit, life began to spring forth, the world was initiated, so the Holy Spirit comes as a dove, hovers over Christ, and His ministry is initiated. We see from the building blocks of reality all the way back in Genesis 1 that something significant is going on here. There is something that God is doing powerfully by the movement of His Holy Spirit to spark new life and generation, and it's tied to these events. These events will produce life, is the message of Jesus' baptism. Now, the Holy Spirit, uh, in the form of a dove, is pictured, is symbolized all the way back in Noah, was it not? The dove goes forth over the waters, and in this case, He goes and He looks for signs of life, and when He finds a branch, He brings it back to the ark the place of God's salvation. And pretty soon, the new world, as it were, is populated. The work of the Spirit pictured in the hovering dove and life springing forth from water. Dry land, once again, separated from the seas. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit hovers over, as it were, the people of God in the upper room. And what happens? Tongues appear as a fire. A fire appears as tongues upon their heads. They begin to speak in other languages and they go forth. And from them, the first wave of believers is sparked into newness of life as God's creative and recreative power is evidenced in these examples. This is my beloved son. God speaks from glory. He blesses his son. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He affirms positively the good of what is before, what is taking place before the eyes of the onlookers at this point. And of course, this moment is followed immediately by Jesus' temptation. Just as, and this, according to his call, calling as the second Adam. Adam goes into temptation in the Garden of Eden and fails. Jesus is, in, after the initiation of his ministry, enters into his temptation in the wilderness and succeeds. Praise the Lord. Genesis 1 trains us to recognize the significance of these events. History is not an impersonal set of cause and effect events where atoms are colliding with one another and by chance we are the result. That is a pagan idea. That is a foolish concept. Unbelievers and those who fail to recognize the architecture of reality itself hold to such a foolish notion. No, everything we see, the existence of you and I, the promise of new life in Jesus Christ is all owed to the God who has spoken, the God who has separated, the God who has seen, the God who has called. God said, believer, in your life, those of you who are baptized, remember this, God has spoken, let there be new life in you. And God has separated you from the condemnation and from the sin that marked your future before you were born again. And He has set you apart in Christ as holy. He has conferred upon you the blessings of eternal life purchased by Jesus Christ, your Lord. And He has adopted you as His son and daughter. And in this new genesis, in this recreation, in this regeneration, you have become born again. The same power that spoke the universe into existence has been evidenced spiritually in your heart, calling you out of darkness into His marvelous light causing the seed of His Word to take root and foothold into the soil of your heart and then produce fruit following as we trust we'll continue to see as your life is sanctified. A creation event has happened in your very soul. Remember that as we retrace the steps of God's revelation all the way back to Genesis 1. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for the glories of Your Scripture revealed to our souls. We thank you that we serve a God who sees the end from the beginning. 
We thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the author and finisher. Nothing escapes your attention. All things march forward to the decree of your ultimate and holy will. And in these things, you reveal yourself as the creator. And more than this, as the sustainer, as the redeemer, as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, as the sovereign and personal God who interacts in such amazing ways so as to call from death new life to save us and set us apart for your holy will. Lord, I pray that you would move us upon the proclamation of your word to grow in our faith, that we might stand in a, amidst a culture of unbelief, that our witness may be equipped and strong, that we may fear you, that we might obey you, that we may display the fruit of our faith as we walk in your footsteps prepared in advance before us. If there are any of the lost who gather here today or are in the hearing of this message, I pray that they would see, Lord Jesus, your authority, pointing to them and saying, you must be holy, and then that they would see that that holiness is possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. And all of this, that you may be glorified, and that your people might be thoroughly furnished for every good work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.